History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 396 episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we're going across that big pond right next to us. We're going over to London, and we're going to be featuring a location suggested by Leah Barnes and her sister, Liz. And that location is Westminster Abbey. Very cool. I was hoping you weren't talking about just Lake Louisa, because that's just across the street. I want to go a little further. (laughs) I mean, that's a little bit smaller than the Atlantic Ocean, but, you know. Well, you did say pond. The really cool thing here, too, is not only did Leah and her sister Liz suggest this, but they've actually been there and they've shared an experience they had, which we'll have coming up. Awesome. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Zach, his mom, Laura, Jane, who spells her name J-A-Y-N-E, and Stephen with a V. Thank you for joining us in the Spooktacular crew. And now, this moment, Nodity. In 2016, archaeologist Sergio Gomez, representing Mexico's National Institute of Anthropology and History, found liquid mercury in three chambers of the Feathered Serpent Pyramid. Liquid mercury is a rare find in tombs. When mercury is found in Mesoamerican tombs, it is in the form of cinnabar, which is a powdery red pigment. Mercury in a liquid form would have been rare at this time, as the cinnabar needs to be crushed and heated to a high temperature, and then the vapor collected, which is the liquid mercury. Mercury was found in Egyptian tombs dating to about 1500 BC, and it is believed that the first Chinese emperor, Qin Shi Huangdi, who had the terracotta soldiers built for his tomb, also had rivers of mercury in his tomb. Sergio Gomez believes that the mercury in the tomb in Mexico was there as a representation of the geography of the underworld. The mercury would have indicated where lakes and rivers were in the realm of the dead. There are some who think that leaders like China's emperor would drink the mercury thinking that it led to long life or even immortality. Clearly they didn't realize the toxicity of mercury. The humidity and lack of oxygen in the tombs helped to preserve the mercury in liquid form. Flowing rivers of mercury in tombs certainly is odd. This history podcast is haunted. And now, this month in history. month of August, on the 15th in 1969, Woodstock began. Woodstock was a three-day concert billed as an Aquarian experience, three days of peace and music, that was hosted in a field near Max Yasger's dairy farm at Bethel, New York. 
The event almost didn't happen with multiple venue changes as promoters scrambled to find somewhere willing to host the concert. Bad weather turned the field into a giant mud pit. There were 32 rock bands and singers that participated, including Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Santana, The Who, Jefferson Airplane, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Blood, Sweat & Tears, Iron Butterfly, Joan Baez, Credence Clearwater Revival, and The Grateful Dead. More than 400,000 people showed up for the event. This was a defining moment for the counterculture. It was also a concert to promote peace, and it was remarkably peaceful considering its size. There were two deaths during the three days along with two births and 742 drug overdoses. Westminster Abbey is an iconic structure that has stood for hundreds of years. More than 3,300 people are buried here, 17 of which are monarchs. And this location has hosted royal weddings and every coronation since 1066 A.D. There are hundreds of memorials, statues, and art pieces inside this once stronghold of the Catholic Church that is now a Protestant and British symbol recognized throughout the world. Not surprisingly, there may be a few ghosts lurking in the shadows. Join us as we share the history and hauntings of Westminster Abbey. Starting in the 6th century, a Benedictine monastery was built here. King Serbert of the East Saxons had just converted to Christianity, and he had it dedicated to St. Peter and consecrated by the first bishop of London, Melitus, or Melitus. I'm not exactly sure how he said his name. I can't really ask him. It was a while ago. And Kelly says Melitus. He was the bishop of London back then. He was actually the first. So there we got it. A legend claims that St. Peter dedicated his own church himself. He appeared as a cloaked stranger and asked a fisherman to row him across the river. If somebody comes over like a cloaked stranger, are you going to row them across the river? <laughs> Doubtful. <laughs> I'm like, uh, I don't know what time of day it was either. If it was at night, oh no. As they neared the church, it lit up with a celestial brilliance and angels appeared in the sky singing. Then St. Peter anointed the church's walls with holy water. And yeah, that probably didn't happen, Kelly, but the monastery here would be an anchor for 500 years. And I'm kind of thinking, since we don't have a bunch of reports in, I don't know what the newspapers at the time would have said, but you don't hear a lot of talk of, oh my gosh, there were all these angels in the sky singing. The first version of the Abbey dates back to 1065 AD. Only parts of it still exist within the present Abbey. That first structure was an enlargement of the small Benedictine monastery that was re-endowed by King Edward and dedicated to St. Peter the Apostle. There was a cathedral on the eastern side of London that was known as Eastminster, so this church became Westminster. King Edward died a few days after it was consecrated, and he was buried in front of the high altar. Harold would be crowned king, but that didn't last long as he was defeated by William the Conqueror, and William would be the first monarch to be coronated in Westminster Abbey. This happened on Christmas Day in 1066, and that started a tradition of coronations that continues today. The parts of this original abbey that remain today are the large supporting columns of the Undercroft, some of the round arches, 
and the Pick's Chamber in the Cloisters. The Undercroft was where the monks had their quarters. After 200 years, it was decided to rebuild the Abbey, and this was undertaken by King Henry III, who wanted Westminster Abbey to represent the Gothic style of architecture. This new church was consecrated on October 13, 1269. I wonder if it was a Friday. (laughs) The next thing King Henry III did was to move the body of Edward the Confessor into a grander tomb behind the high altar. Over the years, this tomb has been joined by the burial of several medieval kings like Henry III himself, Edward I, Edward III, Richard II, and Henry V. There are many memorials in the Abbey made up of 600 monuments and wall tablets. There's something everywhere. If there is something that would get me across that pond that's on my bucket list, this is a location that would do that. Well, one of these days, gotta go. (laughs) The ancient coronation chair is still here, which is remarkable considering its age. Can you imagine how many royal butts sat in that chair? (laughs) Quite a few. I bet they can't do it anymore, though, because, you know, somebody probably sitting and be like, break. You broke the coronation chair. Actually, this one is pretty plain. If you've seen the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II, much grander looking chair, of course. So they moved up in the world with these things. But back then, it was basically wood. But it's not the only real old item that's still at the Abbey. Britain's oldest door, that's Britain, the country's oldest door is here in the Abbey, in the passage leading to the chapter house, and dates to 1050 AD. And I've read that the actual tree that it came from They dated it, archaeologists did, and the tree was probably felled sometime in the 1030s. Wow. So that's how old the wood is on this door. That's amazing. And I don't know why this tree was felled and then they just kind of kept it around for 15 years and then made a door out of it. I'm I'm not sure how that works, but it was one of the things that King Henry III retained in the rebuild. And scientists who've studied the door believe it came from a tree that grew in eastern England, maybe from Essex. The door is constructed in a unique way, not typical of the medieval period, with five vertical oak planks held together with three horizontal battens and iron straps in a flush manner. It is thought that it was originally nine feet high, but has been cut down to six and a half feet, and the rounded arch at the top was removed. There is still cowhide that is part of the door, and an old legend, Kelly, claimed that it was human skin that had been flayed from someone robbing the church, and it was nailed to the door. Oh my... King Henry VII was the first of the Tudors, and he added the Lady Chapel to the Abbey, which is a magnificent space. For people who don't know, many cathedrals have a Lady Chapel dedicated to the Virgin Mary. The most spectacular part of this space is the ceiling. This is described as fan vaulting, and we've never seen anything like it. But it really does look like lace fans that have been carved coming out of the ceiling. The floor is black and white checkered with carved wooden seats lining the walls. Banners of the current Knight's Grand Cross line the walls above the chairs. There's lots of stained glass in here, too, with the Battle of Britain memorial window, along with other themed windows. Speaking of the stained glass, there had once been many medieval pieces in the Abbey, but little of that remains. A few can be seen in the Queen's Diamond Jubilee galleries. The King's tomb is here and was designed by Italian sculptor Pietro Torgiano, who crowned the tomb with gilt bronze effigies of the King and his wife. It always creeps me out when they put people's bodies on top of the tombs like that. You know, these effigies that are carved out of them. Right. The tomb is encircled by a bronze screen made by Thomas Dukeman. The chapel was consecrated on February 19, 1516. There are 15 kings and queens buried in here as well, including Mary, Queen of Scots, Elizabeth I, and from the Stuart line, William and Mary and Queen Anne. 
1540, King Henry VIII dissolved the Catholic hold on the Abbey. As everybody recalls, he got into that big fight with the Catholic Church. He wanted to make the Church of England the set church. So he grabs the Abbey, he sets up a bishop, and the first of those would be Thomas Thirlby. Westminster Abbey was made a cathedral by an act of Parliament in 1550, and Queen Elizabeth I refounded the church as a collegiate church, which is a Church of England outside of the jurisdiction of the diocese and under the direction of the monarch. So this is basically King Henry VIII made himself the head of the Church of England. So Queen Elizabeth is the head of the Church of England here, too. The Westminster School is here as well. And speaking of Elizabeth I, her tomb is creepy as hell, Kelly. It has (laughs) her likeness carved into the marble that makes it look as though she's lying down on her tomb with her eyes open. Oh. And then she has a bejeweled crown on her head. It just, I don't know, it looked kind of creepy to me. Well, yeah, I would definitely want the likeness with the eyes closed, I think. Mm -hmm. It makes you wonder, where did they start doing this? Maybe that's something that we can research and look into when they started putting these effigies on top of the tombs, because it's very similar to what the Egyptians did for the pharaohs with the sarcophagus, because the sarcophagus was supposed to represent the pharaoh. That's true. So it makes me wonder if that's kind of where they got their idea from. Sounds like a rabbit hole we need to go down. I know. (laughs) So do you want to come down the rabbit hole with me a little bit to talk about these effigies? Well, that was quick. (laughs) Let's go. Hello? Hello? Yes, I'm down here in the rabbit hole and I've brought you with me. All right. Well, this is just a quick look into the internet. So here we go. A tomb effigy is one of these tombs that has a sculpted figure on top of it that represents the deceased. They were developed in Western Europe in the Middle Ages. So that's when it started, was in the Middle Ages. Oh. Went up through the Renaissance period. And then it was supposed to make them look like they were in this this eternal state of repose, like they were, you know, just sleeping. I know there's a couple in the Abbey where their hands are kind of pointing up towards the sky where the, as if they're in prayer. Some have their hands just laying on their chests, crossed across their chests, laying at their sides. Usually a husband and wife would be depicted lying side by side. The life-size recumbent effigy was first found in tombs of the royalty, and then this spread to the nobility. And there were even some that were called cadaver monuments, and they kind of were supposed to look like a decomposing corpse. Oh, lovely. (laughs) Okay, that wouldn't be real nice to put on top of somebody's tomb. And I would think that if you're in repose, your eyes would be closed. (laughs) Yeah, and, and maybe her eyes are closed, but it looked to me like they were open. I was I just saw a side picture, so I don't know for sure. I didn't see an overhead. But some of these other ones that I'm looking at, their eyes do look like they're closed, like they're sleeping. Effigies with eyes open certainly are odd. Yes. <laughs> and of course, some of the best known examples are in Westminster Abbey. And then digging a little bit deeper, Kelly, since we're talking about effigies, there were funeral effigies that were made from wood, cloth, and wax. And they were supposed to look like whoever the monarch was of the time. And they were meant to serve as a double to the king and represent immortality, divine kingship. This whatever waxwood thing would be dressed in the royal regalia and waited upon as if it were alive. Oh, my word. And then the monarch's physical remains would remain hidden in the coffin. Okay. That is very unusual. (laughs) Then after the coronation of the new king, so I, I guess this would be happening as they were like, okay, this king's dead. We're coronating the new king. So the waxwood effigy is hanging out there while they're doing this then it would be stored away. The Museum of Westminster Abbey has a collection of English royal wax effigies going all the way back to Edward III of England, who died in 1377. Wow. 
Those must be in some really good condition, I'm sure. (laughs) That is pretty incredible. Yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting. The two Western Towers were designed by Nicholas Hawksmore and built between 1722 and 1745 out of Portland stone in the Gothic Revival style. An earthquake in 1750 damaged one of the piers on the north side of the abbey and crushed several houses. And the abbey suffered damage during the Blitz on November 15, 1940. There was also damage by some bombs in 1941. Notable things connected to the abbey in our lifetimes are the wedding of Prince Andrew and Fergie in 1986, the funeral of Princess Diana in 1997, Prince William and Kate Middleton were married in the abbey in 2011, and Pope Benedict XVI was the first pope to set foot in the abbey, and he did that in 2010. There are 10 change-ringing bells that were cast in 1971 by the Whitechapel Bell Foundry. But the first bells that were here were installed in the mid-1200s. King Henry III ordered that a bell be made for the abbey bigger than any bell that had been made before. And this was joined by a small bell that was in tune with the great bell. By 1255, there were five bells in use. Eventually, there would be six bells, and that number would remain constant until the 20th century. A bell from 1310 is on display in the Jubilee Gallery. The bells are rung during coronations, major church festivals, saints' days, royal and abbey anniversaries, civic events, special occasions, and chime daily prior to evening service. The tenor bell is tolled upon the death of a member of the royal family. The Westminster Abbey Company of Ringers are responsible for ringing the bells. When the bells ring out in peal form, there are 5,000 changes without a break. Yeah, so when you hear the the bells in a peal that's like just constant, it goes through 5,000 changes. Isn't that amazing? It's very cool. And who counted that? Not me. Numbers. I was told there'd be no math. No. The nave is at the western end of the abbey and took 150 years to complete. It was completed in 1517 and features the graves and memorials of many famous people. One of those people is Sir Isaac Newton, and his burial is right in front of a decorated screen leading to the choir. And that's spelled Q-U-I-R-E. The choir has stalls for the choir. Say that five times fast. (laughs) Who sing daily during choral services. Other stalls in here are for the clergy. There's a black and white checkered floor that dates to 1677. Another famous person interred here is Geoffrey Chaucer, and his burial would be the start of Poet's Corner, which houses the burials of other poets, writers, and musicians like William Shakespeare, Jane Austen, Charles Dickens, Rudyard Kipling, and Thomas Hardy. Who I have an affinity for. I've read most of the things he's written. I really enjoy Thomas Hardy. Abolitionist William Wilberforce was buried here in 1833, and Charles Darwin was buried here in 1882. Stephen Hawking's ashes were interred on June 15, 2018. The majority of internments at the Abbey are of cremated remains. The deans of Westminster decide who gets buried. There are also memorials dedicated to C.S. Lewis, Sir Winston Churchill, and President F.D. Roosevelt. The western window is stained glass featuring Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the 14 prophets. There are beautiful Waterford crystal chandeliers hanging from the ceiling, and glass doors were installed in 1990 and have various inscriptions and shields. This would definitely be my favorite part of the Abbey to see. I agree. 
Hey, Billy, why don't we tell them what we're about, man? So we're here to welcome you to the Madhouse Chronicles. It's a talk show with myself, Billy Morrison. And me, as the This man, Prince of Darkness, and we watch and react to the maddest internet clips. What do we discuss, Ozzy? Drugs, rock and roll, aliens, all that kind of shit. Drugs, rock and roll, aliens, and all that kinds of shit. Come and join Ozzy and myself. Visit OsborneMediaHouse.com to get special access to... Come to, on! What do you say? Do you think it's the wildest show on the internet oh. <laughs> clearly westminster abbey is not only a location of significant historical value but as you just pointed out kelly this is a graveyard a burial ground for well-known creators and royalty so it's not surprising there are many ghost stories to go with this location john bradshaw presided at the trial of king charles I and ordered his execution he was buried here john bradshaw and his spirit is probably at unrest because of something King Charles II did. He disinterred the bodies of all those responsible for the death of monarchs, and Bradshaw was one of those people. This was King Charles I's son. So he was not happy with what happened to his father. So Bradshaw's decomposing body was taken to the Tyburn gallows and hung up. His head came off and was stuck on a spike outside of Westminster Hall to serve as a warning. People claim to see him walking Westminster Abbey's Triforium, where he had an office. This usually takes place on the anniversary of Charles I's execution. I'm like, I, I know you're mad at the guy and you want to do whatever to the corpse, but do you have to share it with everyone? Do that in private. <laughs> Keep it to yourself. <laughs> There's a statue of Daniel Pulteney in the South Cloisters that is holding a book and visitors sometimes think that they see it turn a page. There is a tomb to the unknown warrior here. This is dedicated to soldiers who died during World War I and was dedicated on November 11, 1920. An unidentified soldier was given a royal funeral and buried beneath a marble stone from Belgium. Soil was brought from the battlefields of France as well. Visitors have sometimes spotted a see-through soldier standing near the tomb with his head bowed before he dematerializes. One of the specters that has been seen here many times belongs to Father Benedictus. He was a monk, and even though he is now a spirit, many people think he is still alive because he appears very solid and carries on conversations. Many times he's seen floating off the ground, and that is for a good reason. Over time, the floor of the abbey has been lowered, so Father Benedictus is walking on where the floor had originally been. He usually appears in the evenings around 5 or 6, just in time for dinner. One of the first recorded interactions with the monk came in 1900, and the story goes that a group of visitors saw him and watched him for 25 minutes before he backed into a wall and disappeared into the fabric there. I have a feeling they thought they were just looking at a real monk until he disappeared. I would imagine so. Two Americans were visiting the Abbey in 1932 when they got lost. It was close to closing time and they feared they wouldn't be able to work their way back out of the hallways when they ran into a helpful monk. He helped them find their way and told them he was Father Benedictus as they left. The next day, they decided to return to thank him for his help, and when they asked after him, they were told that no monks were living in the abbey. A woman named Lillian Carpenter was in the abbey one evening when she saw the solitary figure of someone in the robe of a Benedictine monk. He had his head bowed as he walked as though in prayer, and she immediately wondered if this was the ghost she had heard about, because no Benedictine monks should be here. The spirit made its way through the deanery and into the nave before passing under the organ screen. Lillian followed it and saw it go into the choir, and as it entered a stall, it faded away. In the choir, she knew she had seen a spirit because the figure was floating 18 inches above the black and white pavement. The floor hadn't been at that height since the Reformation. So you have lots of people sharing their stories about him and 
clearly he looks very, very solid at first. And then they look down and go, but he's not walking on the floor. <laughs> he's corporal, but he's kind of floating along. There's a blog called On the Tudor Trail, and it shared an experience a reader named Catherine had here in 2009. I'd gotten there early and had to wait about a half an hour. Eventually they opened. I paid my admission fee and was actually the first visitor in that morning. Ooh, that'd be cool. You have the whole place to yourself. Absolutely. Those who've been there know you enter through the north transept door, are kind of channeled around up through Henry VII's chapel, back down again, out through the cloisters, then back through the nave and out the west door. I usually just follow the flow as it goes to all the places I want to go anyway. That morning, though, I wanted to see Frances Brandon Gray's tomb. She's buried in St. Edmund's Chapel on the south side of the abbey, just east of the south transept. I'd found the tomb on a previous visit, but had neglected to write down the inscription on it. I decided to do that first, so I went directly there. St. Edmund's Chapel is very small and nobody famous, e.g. anybody whose name would be known to the general public, is buried in it. Like most abbey chapels, it has gates that can be shut to close the chapel. The best way I can describe the gates is that they look like the saloon doors in every Western movie you've ever seen. Two small doors that you push open to enter. Unlike the saloon doors, though, they aren't on springs. Instead, they could be pushed all the way back to lock on the wall so they would stay opened. When I got there, they were already open. I found Francis's tomb again against the far wall of the chapel from the doors, wrote down the inscription, and then spent some time studying the decoration and design. I was there for maybe 10 minutes total. During that time, I believe only two people came in. Both stayed only seconds before wandering out again. When I was ready to leave, I turned around to walk to the door and noticed that the gate that was closest to me was closed. And even as I watched, the other gate lifted up from the wall and very slowly started closing. I was too astounded by this to even move. I just stood and stared at it for about 15 seconds or so until it was completely closed. The hair on the back of my neck and on my arms was standing up. I don't think I've ever felt so creeped out by anything in my life. Finally, I scooted over to the gates and pulled them both open. Fortunately, they weren't locked. I'm sure I would have screamed bloody murder if they had been. I would have too. You're like, I've been locked <laughs> in by the ghost. Yep. I wasn't about to stay around long enough to try to lock the doors back in place. I just rushed out and made sure I didn't go near there again during that visit. I can't say I really believe in ghosts. I'm pretty much an open-minded skeptic on the subject. But I did make sure before I left the Abbey to stop and light a candle for poor Frances. I doubt she gets many visitors. Maybe she didn't want her to leave. Yeah, maybe. She's like, nobody ever comes to visit me. Right. Stay. Have some tea. <laughs> and crumpets. And then Leah and Liz share their experiences. My twin sister and I are definite believers of the paranormal, with my sister being more of an empath than I. But it doesn't make me any less of an enthusiast. We visited England and Scotland back in March 2017. This was the first time we had ever been overseas, and man, this was a trip of a lifetime. We got to visit so many beautiful palaces and castles during our trip, including Hampton Court and Westminster Abbey. While we were visiting Westminster Abbey, which, by the way, is mind-blowing, we were walking down to the older portion of the Abbey and walked into what used to be a prayer room and classroom, and my sister instantly felt a presence, a very old presence. She said it was probably the oldest spirit she had ever encountered, older than old from her words. She felt a sense of immense peace and clarity in that moment, and she said, it's a monk. It's definitely a monk. So I wonder if that was Father Benedictus hanging out. Been. Too bad he didn't show himself to them. I know. We love it when listeners have personal experiences at some of these historic locations that we feature, because Kelly, it makes the ghost stories more real. Absolutely. Many people have had unexplained experiences here. Is Westminster Abbey haunted? That, that is for you to decide. 
Like I said, on the bucket list, maybe one day we'll be there to see it and we'll be taking lots of pictures of everything. It just looks so gorgeous. And you know, I love architecture. And just looking at the outside of this building, it's like, wow. And then you go inside and it's even more wow, wow, wow. <laughs> Wowie, wow, wow. <laughs> Wowie, wow, wow. <laughs> We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. Megan wrote us and she said, I just wanted to write to say that I was so excited to see that you did a podcast about Annapolis, Maryland. I live just 10 minutes away from most of these pubs and frequently go by them on my runs. I've been wanting to do a ghost tour or the haunted pub tours that are offered here. And I was like, go do it. Let us know. about Yeah, some of the absolutely. Stories we want to hear all about it. I've lived near Annapolis for the last year, but I haven't been able to explore much because of COVID. I'll have to go frequent some of the taverns. How awful that's going to be. Ha ha ha, she says. And report back to you. I'll make sure to take lots of photos and toast to the house. Excellent. I think we're going to have a lot of listeners start toasting to the houses that they're in. And she said, I've been to the Middleton Tavern, but I ate outside in the middle of the day, so I don't have any ghosts to report. But I can report that they have great orange crushes. Ooh, sounds delicious. Yeah, I'll go for that. Zach shared in the crew, so a few weeks ago, I visited Georgia's Island in Boston Harbor. There's an old Civil War fort on it with awesome acoustics. So I was hanging out by the bakery singing when something strange happened to me. When I stopped singing, someone whistled and sang in one of the nearby rooms. This was before the hurricane, so I was one of five other people on the island, all of whom were park rangers. When I checked the other rooms, I found no one there. I was completely alone. And then another member of the crew responded to that. My dad patrolled Boston Harbor for the Coast Guard for 40 years, and all I can tell you is that place is haunted. We have heard so many stories from the rangers over the years. I've been there countless times, and that is the first place as a kid that I knew I was sensitive. It's an amazing, fun place to explore. Super spooky. And for people who want to find out more about George's Island in Boston Harbor, we actually featured it on a bonus cast. That's number 172. So when you become a supporter at the $5 level and above, you get all of the bonus episodes, and there's a lot there for you. Thanks for sharing that in the crew, guys. And Kelly, we don't talk much about reviews on the podcast, but if you guys really enjoy the show, whatever podcast catcher that you listen to it in, some of them have reviews, some don't. If they do, please leave your reviews. I know a lot of podcasters say it helps in the algorithms and stuff. That's not so much the case, but it does help when people go and see that other people are talking about a show that they really love. So they're like, oh, I think I'll give that a chance if all these people really enjoy it. Yeah, most definitely. We absolutely appreciate that. So please leave your reviews for us. I want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode was brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We have a ton of people to welcome in to the cemetery. Mort's going to be hard at work here, Kelly. I hope he ate his Wheaties. <laughs> Do they have Wheaties for monsters? He's not a monster. Okay. He's just a little different. Okay, yes, you're right. He's just a little different. A lot different. I like Count Chocula. We will be burying Emily Marshall under a marble headstone. Then, in chest tombs, we're going to be putting Jules Slosher, Edward Jones, Sean Vines, Sandra Parr, and the woman who suggested this episode, Leah Barnes. And then we also have Stephen DeLeon, who's going to be put in a garden crypt. Thank you so much for supporting History Ghost Bump. We greatly appreciate it. Couldn't do it without you. Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting. And join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. 
Like the page and follow us. feeling babe a little crispy do i sound okay no you sound great okay a little crispy <laughs> more than 300 and really numbers more than 300 and 300 and 333 is what i was going to say <laughs> it's a, a little little light on the numbers because there's a lot more people buried here than that well i'm a little light on sleep this morning <laughs> who had the terracotta terracotta welcome back cotter that was hosted in a field near Max. Yeah. That was hosted in a field near Max Yag- Yazgers. Yazgers? Can't say Yazgers. Yowza. Yowza, dairy farm. And we're not sure how many babies were conceived during the concert. <laughs> I'm imagining probably quite a few. This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. All right, you got it down. And this actually is the age of Aquarius now. Not typical of the medieval, not typical of the medieval, medieval, (laughs) (laughs) not typical of the medieval, God dang, (laughs) I'm having Kelly syndrome. Thanks. Oh, bugger. Kelly's making fun of the fact that I'd actually typed bugger than any bell rather than bigger than any bell. (laughs) Oh, Oh, bugger. A bell from 1310 is on display in the Jubilee Gallery. Do you like the way I said Jubilee? Jubilee Gal- Gallery. Jubilee Gallery. <laughs> Make it our own little poem song. Maybe repeat that. A bell from 1310 is on display in the Jubilee Gallery. 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 <laughs> gallery. <laughs> I'm just Who the away. hell put Jubilee and Gallery together? I'm just, yeah, the author. <laughs> the writer of the script. <laughs> Clearly, Westminster Abbey is not only a location... Location? It's a location. It's a location. Yeah. Like a libation? You go over and Have lick a libation things. at the location? No, location. Lick. You go in there and you lick a lot. Ew. Lick an effigy. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> I just had this vision now. <laughs> I've been to St. Peter's Basilica and there is a uh, St. Peter is done in bronze, I think, mm-hmm. sitting on a chair and his feet are bare or they're in sandals or something. And people, so many people have gone by and rubbed his feet for. Ew. Don't, I don't lick them. <laughs> Not out of luck, but, you know, to honor him or whatever. You can't see his toes anymore because they, they've <gasps> literally smoothed out the foot. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine people doing that with their tongues? No. <laughs> anyway. I love the pregnant pauses that we have that people don't know about because Kiwi is going on and on and on. And it's like, can you be quiet? He wants to be in the room recording. <laughs> you need to take a breath. I'm going to scream. <laughs> 